A poem by Brian A. Drew Chalker opens. People always come into your life for a reason, a season, and a lifetime. When you figure out which it is, you know exactly what to do. I think this is also true of books. For me, cookbooks, which abound in my library. Some are beautiful reminders of projects with other creatives. Some have lost their covers from overuse. And some have several editions sitting in a row because they're iconic. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm fabulous. What are you up to these days? Well, I'm waiting for Eric to come back. He's been gone for about three weeks doing a project over in Washington. And in that time, I have weathered frozen pipes, uh, snow in the house, not because it was tracked in on my boots, and oh, no. single degree weather in the tiny house. I've learned a lot about this house. Yeah. Oh, I, I bet. <laughs> so, that sounds yeah. pretty, pretty unbelievable. Snow in the house sounds like not that much fun. No, no, no. But we were able to button some things up. I have to do a big shout out to Kevin who came over and helped get the water running again. Thank you so much. But I am I'm looking forward to him coming home. Running a household is especially a brand new household on your own. Yeah. Is it's a lot of work. It's tough. So, yeah, it is. It's super tough. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to have him coming home. Oh, welcome home, Eric. <laughs> thanks. And thanks, Kevin, for taking care of our lay. We appreciate you. Yeah. So I have a fun update for you. Ooh. We had dinner uh, with some friends in Portland recently, and I was so excited to find a copy of Heroes Feast on their bookshelf. Oh. So if you missed the episode, we talked about Heroes Feast, about cooking food from fandoms and how this builds community. And so this was a great find for me. And the discovery ended up prompting a really great dinner conversation about food, fandoms, and just the pleasure of sharing meals and food while playing a role-playing game. Our friends are gamers as well. And so they had some interesting perspectives and takes on the cookbook that I found really fascinating. Anyway, if you are inspired to hear what a role-playing game session actually sounds like, then I have a podcast suggestion. Fire Breathing Kittens is an actual play one-shot podcast that plays various tabletop role-playing games with a season-long plot. And because there's a beginning and an end to each week's story, you can start at any episode. So brew up a bowl of your favorite Dwarven stew and take a listen, and that's exactly what it's like. That sounds like so much fun. And I love that we talked about it building a community. And I'm really excited that you were able to to talk about that again with your friends and and what the different takes on that were. It was great because this is not a friend group that I've played tabletop games with. Mm. In fact, the, the joint reason for us getting together was food. Our friends cooked for us that night. And so it just ended up being this fun extra dimension 
to the friendship and doing exactly what I had a theory that that cookbook did. We weren't eating a recipe from the cookbook. We weren't playing a tabletop game. But here was this moment for us to talk about food and fandom at the same time. And just by virtue of me being curious about what was on their bookshelves. And so I'm with you in terms of the intro. You're talking about how the books in your collection sometimes are iconic. And so I'm really excited to hear more about our book today. The cookbook that we're discussing today has been referred to as a fundamental cookbook for any American cook, an icon in countless American kitchens, the single most useful cookbook ever, and as American as Stars and Stripes. Those are some pretty serious accolades by some pretty influential people, by the way. It's a cookbook that's in its ninth decade of printing. It's a cookbook much like the Settlement Cookbook that has a legacy of being passed down through generations. As a matter of fact, my 1964 edition has a quote at the beginning from Faust by Goethe, quote, That which thy fathers have bequeathed to thee, earn it anew if thou wouldst possess it. Awesome quote. (laughs) Right? If we took this philosophy and the advice to heart with all of the things that are bequeathed to thee, I wonder what our landfills would look like. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But anyway, back to the cookbook. In case it's not obvious, the cookbook that we're going to be talking about is Joy of Cooking. And it was originally written by Irma Rombauer. As I mentioned before, the cookbook is in its ninth edition. And I just want to quickly go through these editions. The original edition was 1931. And it was, again, written by Irma Rombauer. Second edition, 1936. Third edition, 1943. And in this edition, she did, as many cookbook authors did during this time, put cooking techniques in that would help women with war rationing. Mm -hmm. The fourth edition was 1951. And this edition actually included her daughter, Marion Rombauer Becker's name as a co-author, The fifth edition, which was 1963, Marion Rombauer Becker took over as the principal author, making it the first edition without her mother, Irma, who had actually passed away in 1962. The sixth edition was 1975, and Marion was the primary editor on this one again. And then the seventh edition, the all-new, all-purpose Joy of Cooking, was 1997. This one saw Marion Rombauer Becker and her son, Ethan Becker, as editor's co-authors. And this one is hugely controversial. We don't have time to go into that, but just note that this one, the seventh edition, did receive a lot of controversy over it. The eighth edition was the 75th anniversary edition, and that was in 2006, and that was Ethan Becker, Marion's son, so Irma's grandson. The ninth edition of Joy was 2019, and the authors were John Becker and Megan Scott, Irma Rombauer's great-grandson and his wife. Just as a quick overview, Joy of Cooking is probably one of the most recognized popular American cookbooks, which again is in its ninth edition. The original edition was a compilation of recipes by Irma Rombauer. She was a St. Louis housewife and hostess, a very prolific hostess. She was very good at hostessing. Now, some sources say that the project was suggested to her by her children, Marion and Edgar Jr., to help her cope with the loss of her husband, who had battled depression throughout their marriage and took his life shortly after the Wall Street crash. 
In Food and Wine, editor Kat Kinsman posits that Irma's friends were a bit perplexed by this decision to write a cookbook. She was, after all, more of an entertainer than a cook. But, quote, she liked showing people how to whip dishes together quickly and get back to the party. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Irma gathered together family recipes and recipes that she solicited from friends to create the first edition of The Joy of Cooking. And, and this was the original title, The Joy of Cooking. That was dropped in the 1960s, so now we refer to it as Joy of Cooking or Joy by a lot of people. She actually paid $3,000 of her own money, which was half of her savings, to have 3,000 copies printed. The initial success of Joy may be due in part to the fact that during the 1930s, households were letting go of home cooks and chefs and other hired help. And we've talked a lot about this, about how kitchen chores changed Mm -hmm. through the ages from industrialization, the 1930s during the Depression, when people had to let their help go because they couldn't afford them. Right. And Joy became this companion to these women, a lot of them who found themselves in uncharted territory. They were running households, but they weren't necessarily cooking a lot of them. And it provided more than just recipes. It provided instruction, wit, and camaraderie. And this is something that we've talked about, how cookbook authors, and authors I'm using in air quotes here because I'm talking specifically about Betty Crocker, created this sense of camaraderie, how she became a Mm -hmm. confidant in the kitchen to a lot of these women. Now, as an aside, my girlfriend sent me a link to a musical called I Am Betty, which is being played at the History Theater in St. Paul. And I'll include this in the show notes. I am so excited about this. (laughs) I'm hoping that she'll go so she can tell me all about it. Please, please go. I really, I need, I need, I need to hear, I need to know more about this. And actually... I'm excited because I'm going to tell my sister, Kate, who lives in <gasps> yes! Minneapolis, and I'm going to make her go and yes, yes, <laughs> enjoy yes. I Am Betty because the family loves musicals. So, okay, please continue. So, back to Joy. In its 92 continuous years of publication, it has remained relevant by following, celebrating, and introducing cultural characteristics of the time. And this is a lot like the settlement cookbook in mm-hmm. the editions that we saw with that. It was really important that Mrs. Simon Kander, Lizzie Black, kept up with the times. Yeah. Joy has actually gone from 396 pages in its first edition in 1931 to over 1,500 pages <laughs> in the ninth edition in 2019. Yeah, this sucker's a doorstop. <laughs> it, is it, it is a doorstop. <laughs> And in its almost 100-year history, Joy has been edited by four members of Irma's family. Her daughter, Marion, played a significant role since its inception. The sixth edition would be the last edition edited by Marion. Marion's son, Ethan, as I mentioned, would go on to edit the most controversial edition in 1997, as well as the 75th anniversary edition in 2006. Now, in 2019, the torch was passed to Irma's great-grandson, John Becker, and his wife, Megan Scott. And it's this edition that I really, really want to focus on because not long after the ninth edition was released, I had the opportunity to talk with Scott and Megan about this Herculean effort of editing the latest version of Joy. You did? You got I to did. talk to them? Yeah, like it was real people cool. talking to. Know, oh right? my gosh, this is incredible! <laughs> you've met cookbook celebrity. I mean, I know you've met oh, yeah. several, but seriously, 
I'm impressed. But it, it is. It's always fun to find out the behind the scenes and really listen to the reasons and the challenges of editing a cookbook. And and as you said, you know, this is the doorstop. And it's also, again, almost a hundred years of being right? in circulation. And and kept in the family too. Yes. That's, that's the other part of this that I love so much is that you've got four generations of the same family. Right. Nurturing and developing this book. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Joy was the first cookbook that Megan ever bought for herself. It was not something that was in her family. It wasn't a legacy that was passed on. She moved out of the house. She knew she needed to cook. So she bought her first copy of Joy. And she actually met John, her husband, her now husband, at a coffee shop in 2010. He was working in the coffee shop, and she discovered his connection to the joy of cooking. And he thought she was cute, and he was a little nervous Ooh. about asking. So it was actually Megan who asked John out the first time. <laughs> yes. And and she said, you know, she, she discovered this connection to joy, so she knew she had to ask him out. She also added, John is a very lovely person. So that factored into my addition <laughs> as well, <laughs> which is always a nice thing. Right. I love a meat cute. This is a right. meat cute. I love this. Total meat I cute. Love it. And it was a really super fast courtship. One that Megan said broke a lot of her rules about getting close. But when you know, you know, she said. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, it was this same year that she and John moved to Tennessee to apprentice with John's father, Ethan, who we had talked about previously, where they tested recipes from the 2006 edition and conducted recipe genealogies, tracing every recipe back to when and where it had been added in the book's history, noting changes over time. Wow. Yeah. Now, in 2012, they were approached by an app developer to create a Joy of Cooking app. The development process involved taking the book apart and putting it back together again. It was from this experience that they had gained the insight into how the cookbook was put together, as well as where there was room for improvement. Wow. That's, yeah. I, yeah, I've actually never put thought into what it would be to translate a cookbook into a cooking app. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Now, it was with the information that they gleaned from the app project and a strong sense of obligation to make the book better that John and Megan spent eight months putting together a proposal for the new edition. That's a long time to put a proposal together. Yeah. It included removing duplicate recipes, tightening clumsy organizational issues, adding recipes like Cinnamon rolls, Chicago-style pizza, St. Louis gooey butter cake, recipes that were more relevant and are now iconic. Recipes that were outdated would be eliminated or improved, and ingredients that are now readily available would be added. Okay, I have no idea what St. Louis gooey butter cake is, but I absolutely have to have it now. Yeah, well, it's in Just your cookbook. Title. Yes, title alone, <laughs> I'm going to have to make that. That won't be the recipe, but I'm going to make it. All right. Now, I, I know that we all get a little cringy when we think about things being eliminated for something that's iconic. But one of the things that Megan stressed is that without updates, quote, it just becomes a museum piece or a nostalgic keepsake. Not that there's anything wrong with that, 
But the eight revisions of joy since 1936 have balanced past traditions with contemporary tastes and an awareness of what today's cooks are confronted with in the kitchen and at the grocery store, end quote. Which is so, so true, and in my opinion, a very responsible and respectful way to provide readers with accurate and appropriate information. This is actually triggering some thoughts. So the other thing that happened when we were visiting in Portland was that I had gotten into a great conversation with my Uber driver over food. He likes to bake, his wife likes to cook, and he was lamenting that he actually lost recipes that his grandmother had. She refused to give them because she was like, you can find them everywhere. And yeah, he absolutely could find the recipe, but what he didn't know was her technique. Mm. And and so it actually caused this interesting conundrum. You don't need to to make cookbooks into museum archival pieces. We literally do have museums and archives for that purpose. You don't need to just keep producing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. But it does cause these interesting scenarios where something a technique is lost and we we certainly encounter that i encounter that a lot this season about how the heck do i make this in a hot Mm -hmm. oven what is a hot oven losing technique but at the same time maintaining a recipe and i now realize a cookbook can be so much more than a literal collection of receipts or recipes that it does often impart knowledge and that is is valuable it is an interesting conundrum i can appreciate that and respect the decision that they made to make sure that this was something that maintained its relevancy right right because its goal is to impart joy it's not it's not just to memorialize irma rombauer's recipes the book came together for a reason and a purpose i think is what we're what we're discussing yeah And I think that's a really good point. And, you know, writing and editing a cookbook may sound like a dream job, but it isn't all unicorn cakes and rainbow cookies. (laughs) No, it's not. John and Megan tested over 1,500 recipes and developed 600 new recipes for the 2019 edition. Now, as I mentioned before, the testing process started when they were in Tennessee working with John's dad. And this test kitchen was situated in a double-wide trailer an hour from the nearest grocery store. They would drive to Knoxville and spend an entire day shopping for the week's recipe testing. God forbid if you forget anything on your list, Megan exclaimed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So just the physical location of the test kitchen itself added some complications to recipe testing. In 2012, publisher Scribner, who had hired a professional test kitchen in New York to do the recipe testing for the 1997 edition, uncovered a bunch of test notes. So we organized them, Megan said. With these notes and the recipe genealogies that they created working with Ethan, they started to develop a list. If they weren't able to find test notes for a specific recipe, it went on the to-be-tested list. And if the gathered notes from the recipe seemed out of sorts or had issues, it also ended up on this list of recipes to be tested. Once the new list was created, they started the daunting task of testing the required recipes. The recipe testing for this specific edition was done, quote, mostly in small kitchens with normal appliances, which we think was really important. 
We want to be on the same playing field as our readers when it comes to cooking conditions, Megan emphasized. Even when they hired three additional recipe testers who were culinary professionals, meaning they probably were either bloggers or recipe developers or food writers, but they were not chefs. They were first and foremost home cooks. Mm-hmm. And Megan says that some of the most edifying moments of the process included reverse engineering recipes. She explained this by using the example of, quote, hitting upon the process for Calabrian-style chilies. In our research, we couldn't find a recipe in English. So there was a lot of janky Google Translate clues and Italian YouTube viewing. The payoff for the recipe was huge. It was a multi-day process, but you end up with the real deal Calabrian chilies for all of your pizza topping needs, end mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other recipes were equally fulfilling. The Canelles de Bordeaux, which went through five iterations before they were satisfied, and the Chiabatta recipe, for which Megan, quote, tweaked the hydration level and kneading instructions at least six times before the loaves had the proper bubbly crumb, end quote. Developing recipes which required extra research and testing provided what Megan said were the most memorable successes. That is a lot of iterations to go (laughs) through when you're testing 1,500 recipes. Right? It kind of reminds me of an anecdote I heard about Julia Child where she did dozens of iterations on mayonnaise because mm. because she was a perfectionist frankly she really yeah. wanted the recipes to be so easy to do that there was never a moment of interpretation but right. that they also had to taste right so i really appreciate the fact that they did that much right recipe testing on that yeah. many recipes that's a that's unbelievable yeah Now, recipe testing does have some byproducts that are decidedly difficult to manage, namely too much food for any one household to consume. And although they did schedule the testing so they weren't inundated with too many cakes, for example, some recipes just make more sense to be batched together, like ice cream, cookies, marshmallows, for instance, because you want to make all of those at the same time. The testing for these actually happened to coincide with a good friend's birthday. And what better gift than ice cream, cookies, and marshmallows? (laughs) And Megan says, quote, two weeks later, we saw him again, and he thanked us by saying, I've been living off the leftover cookies since the party, and it's the best present ever, end quote. (laughs) Now, in order to make room for new recipes, they did need to have to do some cutting, but they tried to be very intentional about it. And to create space for items that John and Megan had noted as missing from the manuscript or foods that were making waves on social media or family recipes, they had the daunting task of culling recipes from the previous edition. And Megan says, quote, We wanted to include recipes for dishes that people already want to make because Joy has always been a cookbook that provides solid, reliable recipes for classic dishes. In this edition, we had to try to expand that definition of classic. Mm. And I think that that's a good point because, like you had mentioned, Kim, mm-hmm. you you want to be able to have those classic dishes. You want to have a reference for those classic dishes, for the coca van, the bouffe bourguignon. But 
we also have other dishes that now have become classics. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine having to have that job of deciding which recipes needed to be culled. Right. Although I think in some instances, there were some recipes that were easier to cull than others, like shrimp wiggle, which is shrimp in a ketchup bechamel sauce with peas that served over toast, or golden glow salad, a sweet and savory gelatin salad that involved orange juice, chicken stock, and mayonnaise to garnish it. And again, where the people really did make them at the time they were included in the additions, we just don't cook like that anymore. Right. They also did consolidate some recipes. As an example, the stuffing chapter contains several variations on a basic bread stuffing. So what they did is they included an additions to, which gave the overarching recipe. But then in addition to that, you can add this, this, and this so that they did consolidate a lot of those that Mm. made room for other recipes like the St. Louis gooey butter Mm -hmm. (laughs) cake. (laughs) And where appropriate headnotes of recipes became home to variation suggestions. So like in the recipe pancake, the headnote includes the silver dollar pancake recipe rather than here's your pancake recipe and here's your silver dollar recipe. The headnote says, you know, you can make these smaller. So there's silver dollar pancakes. Right. Recipes that they didn't feel were good enough were removed and duplicates were eliminated as well. And in talking about the fact that they were being very intentional about what they were cutting out, Megan indicated that they felt that some of the recipes had been added just for the kitsch value. And she said that they weren't interested in Joy being just a funny, kitschy book. They really wanted this to continue to be very useful and represent the era in which it was published. Yeah. Joy of Cooking has sold over 20 million copies since its inception, so it's clearly one of America's favorite cookbooks. And John and Megan believe that the early success of this cookbook had a lot to do with Irma's personality. In that era, cookbooks were pretty dry and utilitarian. Irma's book was different. It had artwork. It had jokes. It has historical asides. But also, Irma was not a professional cook. And by all accounts, as I had mentioned, she was not a great cook. And Megan says, although I imagine by today's standard, she would not be too shabby. But I think that that's where her success lay. Mm -hmm. She spoke to her readers as a peer. She was in the same boat. She was not an expert, just someone trying to get food on the table so that she could get back to her life, end quote, or back to the party. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Megan goes on to talk about Marion's contributions in the 60s and 70s, saying that she really turned Joy into this sort of desert island cookbook where you could find out how to cook anything. Joy has this reputation of reliability. And Megan says that they know people who have used the book to figure out how to field dress wild game. It's the kind of book that's there when you need it. Megan explained. And, you know, at first, Megan didn't want her name included in the lineage of this iconic cookbook. Her reward, she said, was having the honor to work on the project. She felt very strongly about John's name being listed on the cover. John, however, did have very strong opinions about Megan's name being included. And in the end, 
she relented. When I asked them what it felt like to see their names on the cover of this book, they answered with pride tempered by humility, it's a surreal feeling to see your name there. It was surreal to actually hold the copy of the new edition for the first time. We both feel beholden not only to the readers, but also to Irma and Marion's legacies. We wanted to do the right thing by them, too. There's equal parts pride and gratitude. Gratitude to Irma, Marion, and the readers that have used joy over the years. We dedicated the book to those three parties. They sound like lovely people. Yeah, people that you could just sit down with and talk to about anything, really. If you like this episode, there are a couple of other episodes that I think you will either like to revisit or listen to for the first time. In episode 36, Feminism at the Kitchen Counter, from Betty Crocker to Julia Child, we introduce you to Betty Crocker and talk about her influence on home cooking as well as Julia Child's impact on American cooking. Episode 57, Bon Appetit! How Julia Child made America fall in love with French food is all about another iconic cookbook that introduced French cooking to America. And we discussed another cookbook about legacy and tradition in episode 69, Cooking Up Integration, The Settlement Cookbook. Kim, do you have any other suggestions? I do, actually. You know, the story about Irma Rombauer being inspired to work on uh, compiling her recipes into a cookbook reminded me, actually, of the story of Edna Lewis and the taste of country cooking. We talked about that in episode 55, where it actually started as an initial joint effort with a socialite and it ended Mm -hmm. up becoming her own project in her own right. So I was thinking about the idea of collaboration and How do you get inspired to start to put together a book of recipes? Is it something that you intrinsically feel you must do or are you influenced by an outside party? So I I think Edna Luce's story is actually Mm. really kind of a fun one to to catch up on if you're not familiar with her amazingness. And then the other thing, and and this is in the vein of it being a family collaboration (laughs) with multiple generations working on it. I loved discovering how how to eat and cook in Chinese by Bu Wei Yang Chao came together. We talked about that in episode 62, because that, again, was a multi-generational effort with Ms. Chao, her husband, and their daughter, and how that collaboration actually ended up with some pretty fun anecdotes and side notes and sidebars to the recipes themselves. So those would be my recommendations for a little bit more information, some a little bit more entertainment in this vein. Yes. All fabulous. All fabulous suggestions. Thank you. Now, I talked a lot about the latest edition of the cookbook, and I'm curious what edition you'll be choosing to cook from in our next episode. Well, I do have the most recent edition from 2019. And the funny reason why is because we do not have any family copy of this in my collection. Meaning, I I think my mom might have one, but I believe it's a secondhand acquisition somehow, somewhere. When I next go home, I'm going to raid her book collection and see what I can find. <laughs> and But, you know, the funny thing about The Joy of Cooking is obviously I've, I know about this book. It's been on the periphery of my culinary knowledge. As long as I've been interested in cooking, I feel like I've been aware of The Joy of Cooking, especially as a resource, as a go-to. Mm. You, it'll teach you how to cook anything you possibly want. Very much in line with Betty Crocker, of course. But we I just don't remember having copies around to reference. 
and it makes sense to me now that I understand the history of the timeline of the additions. My parents were married in South Africa in 1971, and that is very much between two editions of this cookbook. Mm-hmm. Also, as you mentioned, it, this cookbook has, is as American as Stars and Stripes. And frankly, my family is not of an American origin. I've mentioned this many <laughs> times before. No surprise to anyone. So clearly this was not something that my parents would have received as a wedding present. Mm. And by the time they immigrated to the United States, I don't know how they would have ended up with a copy of it right. either. So I'm cooking from the latest edition. I'm ex- so excited now that I know more about Irma, about all the family members that have brought this book into being to get its to its current state now, and also having discovered cookbooks all season and encountering so many that I have never either heard of or had cooked from before. I'm really excited, but I've decided preemptively I'm definitely going to cook a meal that I have never cooked before out Ooh. of this cookbook. So I really appreciate, Leigh, you bringing this one up into our season, into our show, and love that I get to hear secondhand from Megan (laughs) in such detail. (laughs) You clearly covered a lot when you talked to them, and Mm. how exciting to have for you to have had that experience, and exciting for us to be able to hear about that. I don't know how else we would have heard those stories. Yeah, Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was very honored that they allowed me to to interview them. Yeah. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our Table Talks about food and recipes community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate you rating or reviewing or both the podcast on Apple Podcast or Podchaser or Spotify. These reviews and ratings really help us to grow our community, and we love to add more people to the As We Eat community. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack, and this is a monthly collection of stories and favorite features and recipes touching on the theme. This month, we have focused on foods and techniques that bring us closer to comfort. Subscribe now and give a gift subscription so you won't miss a single tasty bite at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole heck of a lot of passion. So much passion. Ba-ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-